Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and leave favorable reviews. We have discussed on this program a number of times the issue of social media and uh, different problems with social media, bias, privacy, uh, possible regulation. And uh, there have been in the recent weeks and months, a number of legislative proposals to try and deal with these issues that have been put forward, in particular, uh, a couple of proposals by Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. And so to discuss these, we brought back a repeat guest for the program, Jeremy Carl, previously uh, was on the show to talk about some of this stuff and also uh, nuclear power. Jeremy, welcome back. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I want to talk a lot about some of the specific ideas in the Hawley bills. But before we get to the specifics, I think we should spend a little bit of time just talking about the general issue of, you know, what is the issue with social media that might justify regulation to begin with? You know, I mean, uh, there's a lot of social media platforms. It's a part of the private dynamic market. So, you know, why is it that the government should be involved? Shouldn't they just stay out of it? Well, I mean, I think the, the first thing I'd say is that they're you know somewhere between monopolies or oligopolies when you look at share of the market. And in fact, even if you look at traditional antitrust law, I, I don't have the numbers uh, right off the tip of my tongue, but you know, if you have something like four companies that control 70 or 80% of the market, right? Like they're kind of thresholds, which gets tripped which can immediately bring more scrutiny. Well, it's, it's a lot worse than that for, you know, Google showing 90% of search and Twitter for what it does, you know, dominant Facebook again. I mean, the, the, the percentage of overall internet advertising, the percentage of kind of share that they have. Um, in addition, even beyond that, if that's not persuasive to you, when competitive products have tried to pop up, often they've been deplatformed in various ways by payment providers, by, by other things. And so, uh, I mean, the, the example of Gab, which is kind of a, a right-wing attempt to, uh, to look at some of this stuff and some of the ways in which they have uh, kind of had the, the market turn in extremely hostile ways to them. They haven't been able to have their apps on the Google App Store even. And so, you know, I think the notion that this is some sort of a quote-unquote free market is, is kind of a fanciful one. And I say this as, as a guy who... Uh, was was one of the internet 1.0 guys and it was involved in the business for its earliest days and uh, you know I'd say kind of beyond that, um, that that kind of generality there's the specifics of the facts that this touches on political speech and I think it's really hard to argue just as a thought experiment that if Twitter desired uh, decided to ban Donald Trump, and they really still to this day don't have truly clear and, and consistent policies for how they were to ban people that somehow political speech or his political speech would not be impinged. Or even if you looked at yourself, I would certainly much rather be banned uh, from publishing in any number of newspapers, magazines, et cetera, for life rather than lose uh, the ability to tweet. Um, and so I think when we talk about political speech, 
there needs to be a higher threshold. And this, this even there's there's some uh, history to this. There are even Supreme Court cases where it says we have a precedent uh, going back to the 1930s, even where it says even when a private uh, forum, when a, when a when a town is, it's kind of a company town and owns uh, it owns the town that uh, the government cannot come in and restrict speech uh, in certain ways uh, in that town, um, the, the, the town's government. And so um, anyway, we could go on and on about this, but I'd say those are sort of the headlines for why I think this is a problem that we really need to address. Those are interesting points. One thing that occurred to me, there's obviously a lot of facets to this issue, but you know, uh, one analogy that occurred to me is that if you look at landlord-tenant law, if you rent a apartment or some office space from someone, you have rights to that piece of property, but you don't own it. There are legal limits on the way that you can be evicted from that. It, it's not the case that you know the landlord can decide, well, I just don't like you, and so you know you have to be out by you know five p.m. Right? Most jurisdictions have procedures in place to offer protection. Sometimes they, you know, we can argue about whether they go overboard in some cases, but. You know, there, there's a there's an understanding that uh, even if a person doesn't own the property, ultimately they have some vested interest in it. And similarly, I think one of the issues that you have with some of these things is you have people who have built up, you know, large subscriber bases or other bases on their platforms, you know, on YouTube or on Facebook or Twitter, and this can be important to them reputationally and also even financially. And it is the case where, you know, potentially without even knowing the reason, they can get kicked off at a moment's notice and, and not really have any, any recourse. Absolutely. And in fact, the, the last point that you mentioned, and I'm glad you raised it because I should have mentioned it up front. I think a lot of the legal scholars who look at this issue think it's, it's really the strongest avenue to go after is, is essentially kind of a, a fraudulent I can't remember the exact term they use, but essentially, you know, kind of a fraud, fraud, fraudulent inducement that essentially these people have been lured into building these businesses, uh, you know, by, by a, say, a Twitter that said, you know, four years ago that we're the free speech wing of the free speech party. Um, and they've built up these very valuable brands, these very valuable other things. And now all of a sudden, A, the rules have changed out from under them. And B, as you pointed out, they can suffer quite a bit of economic and reputational harm. And the rules have changed, right, from from what they agreed to. And there's a great asymmetry of power between the people making those rules and even a pretty successful policy entrepreneur or somebody similar who is subject to those rules. All right, Doug, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. (laughs) Well, yeah, well, I was going to ask, you know, sort of on this particular point, how many people does that really effect. I mean, that's that's the Alex Joneses of the world. I guess that would be, you know, Diamond and Silk or somebody if they were banned from Twitter or Facebook or wherever. But the average person, even if they, you know, they pop off and they get occasionally suspended or what have you from, from Twitter or Facebook, they really don't have much of an argument that they've built up some big valuable brand, say the way Alex Jones is. So isn't this kind of a an argument that's for a a very narrow, small group? Well, again, I think there's lots of facets. And obviously, it would be correct to say that there are going to be certain people. And I don't think you kind of need to go out quite as wild and woolly as Alex Jones to find some people who've been kicked off Twitter or who are have their speech banned on Facebook. But certainly, you know, it's not an infinite set of people that are going to suffer substantial reputational damage. But this is, again, just one angle of which I would find really problematic. I, I just think that 
this is so fundamental if you look at it from a principal's perspective to what it means to speak in the public square. And in fact, there are a number of Supreme Court justices who've gone on the record now and kind of talking, even Twitter's attorneys when they were before Congress recently, or, or Twitter's CEO talking about this being the digital public square. Well, if it's the public square, I think that the, the rights to speech need to be given the really the highest priority given uh, our democratic institutions in this um, country um, that, that we do have. And I don't think we have that right now. And then there's all sorts of things and all sorts of self-censorship that goes on on the, on the right and all sorts of ways in which they have very arbitrarily made certain political statements about, say, how you can refer to transgender people on Twitter. And I personally have chosen to ignore those, for example, with respect to transgenderism. In theory, if I had a little bit higher profile there, perhaps I would run afoul of a trust and safety person and get my account banned. Um, but, but, you know, these are political disagreements. And uh, when monopoly power folks are coming into the public square over political disagreements and shutting down political speech, um, that is, I think, should be of a concern to anybody. And certainly it should be a concern to folks in particular on the right who are being most impacted by that. One other thing that you did allude to you know, is the issue of uh, of bias. One thing that concerns me when you talk about, you know, Google having 90% of the search market, I don't know if that's English or America or, or, or what, but I recall there's been a lot of commentary on this. And I read a piece that David French wrote about this for National Review, arguing that no, you can't, basically, social media companies are allowed to be biased, and there's nothing the government can do to stop them or whatever. And Sort of the weird thing about that article is that in the course of it, he refers to a particular legal case that involved a Chinese language, kind of like the Chinese equivalent of Google, a search engine that was basically censoring results about Tiananmen Square and anything that was critical of the, you know, Chinese Communist Party, right? And so the, you know, the implication by analogy was, well, you know, I'm not saying that Google is doing this now, but if they to, they could skew search results, you know, in a biased way so that if cer- certain topics or perspectives on things would be searched for them, you wouldn't be able to find them or other things. And you, you would not even know as a, you know, an individual John Q. public searching, you wouldn't even know that uh, necessarily that the search was biased in this way. And that's absolutely correct. And, and in fact, that's going on right now. And there's been some scholars who've looked at this and found, you know, frankly, quite enormous effects on um, on voting that are that are happening because of some of the biases that Google has introduced to its search process, for example. And I think you kind of jogged my memory on another really important thing that I think is you know something that should be front and center. And this kind of goes back a little bit to being somebody who has history uh, with this and was in fact a tech journalist at the time when these things were originally being put into place, which is called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Which, which, which was something that gave these platforms, essentially the platforms came, and again, when this, I remember when this was happening in the late 1990s and I was writing about it, they basically said, look, we're YouTube, and if some schmo kind of puts up a slanderous video, we're just a dumb platform and we can't be responsible for that. And what the government uh, eventually kind of came in and did, it said, okay, we're going to give you this protection from legal liability on your platform that is frankly much higher than what uh, we have in the non-digital space. For example, uh, newsstand vendors can be legally liable if they're putting out 
knowingly libelous content on their newsstand. But we said in the digital space, we're going to give you these special benefits. But kind of the understood exchange was basically you have to be a dumb platform. You can't get into the censorship business. And in fact, that's exactly what they've ended up doing. They've ended up getting all the benefits. Um, but they now, now that they've built these multi-billion dollar business off those benefits, they don't want to pay the costs. And this is something that, that Senator Hawley has pointed out uh, on numerous occasions and, and has, in fact, introduced some legislation to, to address that. The first bill, which was introduced uh, two months ago, maybe something like that, specifically addresses 230. The summary I would give to it is that basically it gives the Federal Trade Commission oversight authority so that large platforms, I forget what the threshold is, but, you know, over many million users, then every certain number of years, you got to go before them and prove that you are not being politically biased in the way that you operate your platform. And if you can't prove that you're not being politically biased, then you lose the protections of Section 230. Is that is that a fair summary? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair summary. Again, I, it's been a while since I looked at the text myself, but I think that's that's kind of the gist of it. Yeah. So, you know, I obviously, I have some concerns in this area about, you know, social media and, and some of these tech companies. I'm not in principle adverse to regulation. I do have also, you know, when I looked at this legislation, I wasn't totally pleased with it either because my perspective on this is, you know, I don't trust the tech companies. I also don't trust uh, civil servants and government bureaucrats or the permanent bureaucracy. Uh, and it seemed like there was still so. So if you're going to have regulation, my preference would be for clear, simple rules that don't give a lot of discretion to folks. And you can just tell whether. Yeah. And the problem I saw with this bill to me was there was a lot of vagueness because obviously we don't want tech companies to be politically biased. But what exactly that means in practice when you have all sorts of different political views and, you know, if you're giving equal time to, say, the Libertarian and Green Party candidates as as the Republican and Democratic candidates, for example, even though, you know, is that being politically even handed or is that being politically biased, even though, you know, one is much more popular than the other? It, it just seems like you're opening all sorts of can, cans of worms that could be exploited by trying to protect conservatives from a group of people that don't necessarily like them but the laws are going to be implemented and enforced by another group of people that don't necessarily like them. Right. Right. But Josiah, why, you know, perhaps the libertarians aren't more popular because the, the system is rigged. So it's sort of, sort of a reinforcing problem, if you will. You know, I think these are, these are very reasonable concerns. Um, And what I would do is sort of abstract and jump back a little bit before kind of addressing those substantively, because and I say this, and I've talked to the senator a few times, although not specifically about this bill, but I've also talked to his staff. And so, I mean, I have some knowledge of kind of their thought process, but, but this now I want to stress is really my view and not, not I'm not projecting how they're looking at it. I, I look at it from a more perspective of 230, when you talk to the tech guys, that is like the thing they are scared of losing. And this is this is a start of a political process. This is not where we're going to necessarily end up with finished law they need to have the fear of God put into them. And right now they don't. They are abusing the, the right of the political spectrum, left and, left and right, no pun intended, 
if people had any idea kind of the level of, of some of these effects and biases, and, and I think the way that, frankly, president's re-election is already being um, undermined in any number of ways by, by uh, social media bias and other things, that there would be a lot, a lot more concern uh, in a very public way on the right about this. And so I simply view this as um, we're showing the, the left that we, and the tech companies that we absolutely mean business that everything is on the table and uh, they can either kind of, you know, be one of the chefs or they can be the meal. And, and so I, I kind of abstract to that. And of course, we're going to have to address some of these issues that you're going to come in mind. I don't think any of us are super excited uh, on the right about uh, giving dramatic power to uh, government bureaucrats to make these decisions. But on the other hand, we kind of have to weigh that about, I, I think things are so bad now that, um, you know, I'm not sure that a political process, even with that, I, I suspect would be a fair bit better. Um, but, but I think more to the point, um, uh, my, my hope is that politically, by, by putting out some acts like this and making people understand that there's seriousness about them, there's some momentum behind them, and that people, you know, the president is paying attention to, the president has actually gone out and explicitly, effectively endorsed some of these that we bring these guys to the table and uh, get them to knock off some of their worst behavior. Well, so let me ask you about that. So, you know, I haven't listened to Rush Limbaugh for a number of years, but I remember back in the day that there was a lot of talk about the fairness doctrine and how, uh, I guess, that, you know, Bill Clinton or others were going to, you know, put the fear of God into Rush Limbaugh, or maybe it would have been Sean Hannity, because given the, uh, the market uh, control that conservatives had on talk radio that we needed the fairness doctrine. So what's different about this? Is there a, is this not a, frankly, it sounds like uh, naked power grab of we now have the ability to impose our will on social media versus back then being afraid of a Democratic president uh, imposing his will on radio. Where's the principle there? How can uh, somebody who's who sort of recalls those days, what would you explain to me why those situations are different, either in principle or uh, on the technology? Sure. Well, I'd say, I mean, let's talk about the principle and the technology first. I mean, I think there's a difference between a place where you have a theoretically and practically limited resource, which is called bandwidth and airtime, versus something where there is no such natural limit, which is speech, right? Like in theory, everybody can speak and people who are interesting will have that speech amplified and people who aren't won't. So I'd say that's, that's the biggest substantive principle difference. I'm certainly not looking to recapitulate a fairness doctrine for the internet, nor do I view this as a situation where it's just the right saying, and I wanna, in case this was somehow misconstrued from my earlier comments, it's not a question of, oh, well, well we've got them over a barrel and uh, therefore, you know, we need to make them then pay and fear us just because this is some sort of raw power political play. My view is we are the aggrieved victims at this point of what I view to be um, both illegal and immoral conduct that is having a profoundly uh, negative um, effect on the political discourse. And what we are simply doing is engaging in the reality of politics, which is that me saying that is not going to have a great deal of effect, but me saying that and a credible bill that is going to make them feel a little bit uncomfortable is going to potentially have um, an ability to 
make them stop uh, some of this behavior. What makes the situation with radio any different? Why wouldn't a, you know, a, a liberal leaning talk show host with a very small uh, base in the 1990s, why wouldn't they feel like that, you know, that they're somehow mistreated because they, their programming wasn't getting amplified, their programming wasn't getting the, you know, the 11 o'clock lunchtime slot or the drive time slot? Because it wasn't, I mean, it's a question of audience. I mean, it really is not a particularly, I mean, it, it, people do bring up this parallel, but it's really just not a very good parallel. If, if, the, if the left-leaning talk radio guy had had a significant audience demanding his stuff, he would have had no problem getting on the, the radio. I mean, these are commercial, that, that remains true today. These are commercial operations, right? Um, Twitter and Facebook are banning people who unquestionably have huge audiences that have already demonstrated a, de- a great demand for their content solely on the basis of, well, we don't like X or Y political thing that they've done. So I don't see it as as parallel. Again, there's nothing that I'm, I'm not demanding, and, and nor is, uh, is my understanding of the bill demanding that you know they somehow give their promotional thing that they have to be kind of promoting my content in particular. But But what this is not about is despite what the tech companies have said that, oh gosh, you know, we have to protect uh, people from content they don't want to see. It's actually quite easy, relatively speaking, to design a user interface that would give users a great deal of control to not see content that they might find disturbing or unpleasant in some way. It's very much what this has been about for tech companies is stopping, in many cases, very popular content that people really did want to see and often content that was not very well represented in the so-called mainstream media. And it's preventing the exchange of information that way. That's the reality of what's been going on with social media censorship. And I really think to claim otherwise, I'm not saying that you are claiming this, but I think it's it's really both a a real misreading of the history and and frankly disingenuous. Let's talk also a a new bill from uh, Senator Hawley this Social Media Addiction Reduction Technology Act. What is the senator proposing there? What's the, what's the purpose behind this bill? Yeah, well, I mean, let me not, again, I, I, I don't know that I've read the full text of, of uh, that bill in some time, so I want to be a little bit cautious. But, but let me go back again and talk about what I think is the broad principle, which is that we now know from both kind of, frankly, just looking out the window, I think you could figure this out, but we've seen with increasing research that these are um, addictive technologies in many ways, that they cause uh, a great deal of emotional harm uh, on average to consumers who use them in certain ways. And that particularly, I know Senator Hawley has looked in some of the other legislation he's done at at kind of restricting um, sorts of bonus boxes and things that can be accessed in in games in ways that are addictive that, that kids might be facing. And that's actually something that he's had some bipartisan agreement on. Um, but I think it, it, it's, it's looking at the reality of, of how we treat this versus how we treat other things that are quite addictive and deleterious overall and saying, hey, we shouldn't just assume that we're going to give carte blanche uh, to this. And again, I, I don't want to kind of get in the, the weeds of saying, gosh, you know, I really love... Uh, section three of this, and I think section four should really be uh, improved in, in subsection 2.2, um, because I think what it's, what he's really trying to do here is raise this as a very significant issue. And I think that that's, that's very positive that he's doing so. 
another kind of area that he's been very active on is kind of this, this again, this assumption that these companies kind of own our data. Um, and there's really, frankly, incredibly, both there's a huge power asymmetry and completely in, uh, to- totally incomplete dis- disclosure about how much of that data is owned, what it's being used for, et cetera. And I think, again, Senator Hawley is just trying to shine a light there. And, and I think that that is, that is frankly all to the good. And I would love to get to the point with these bills that we could really be arguing about um, subchapter three, you know, section 2.2 and whether it goes too far in X direction, but I don't want to miss the forest uh, for the trees. And I think the forest is, is really important here. Are you saying that this is sort of in the Trump style of negotiations, if you will? Are you saying that this is sort of an opening gambit and that he's maybe taking an extreme position so that it will further the dialogue? I, again, I want to be very careful here because I think that, that the senator is in earnest about caring about this. I don't think that he's, I mean, I think he's a very serious person. He's obviously a very smart guy, clerk for the chief justice, you know, law, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, I don't want to, I certainly wouldn't want to use the word like gambit, but I do, and I, I don't think he's taken an extreme position, but I think he's like anybody else who introduces a bill, particularly on something that's fairly novel. I, I don't think he is uh, naive to the point that, Anything that ultimately gets signed is not going to be exactly what is proposed, uh, you know, in, in version 1.0 of this. So, um, again, I think that that the real question is, do we see this as a problem that really needs to be addressed in some significant way legislatively? Are we concerned about these power asymmetries? Are we concerned about the increasing amounts of data that we have on the addictiveness of this and the negative consequences. The government has certainly been in the business of regulating addictive things in the past. We can argue about whether that's been to the good or not. I think it's been, certainly not been perfect, but in, in my view, kind of generally has been to the good. And, uh, and I kind of view, view him as, you know, he's putting out the first marker here. And if people can improve that, that's wonderful. And I think he would say the same thing. And uh, the most important thing is that we really get these issues out and stop kind of using the frame of these tech companies that they can, these sorts of powers they have go unchallenged. We were just finding out even about new things today. And I saw Senator Hawley tweeting about this of where we have contractors for, I believe it was Amazon. And I apologize if I've got the company wrong here, but it was one of the really, really big tech companies. that sort of Facebook. was Facebook. You know, thank you. It was Facebook in transcribing um, what these allegedly private conversations that people are having, you know, going on over their audio. Um, I know that, for example, Twitter's engineers are, uh, have been documented as to looking into direct messages that people are sending each other privately. Again, no, no public interest uh, involved there unless they're worried about a crime and that there was no suggestion there would be. And I think Silicon Valley's power to do these things has been unchecked for far too long. And I think Senator Hawley is performing a huge public service to say, hey, you know, we need to question the assumptions that are baked into this cake because they're not good assumptions. Yeah. And I would just add, you know, try and get a little bit of synergy with, you know, libertarians who are more wary of government power than, you know, corporations or whatever. You know, if tech companies are collecting this information, regardless of whether you're worried about what they do with it, that information is also available for governments to get at either through legal means, you know, uh, like if the NSA or whatever says, hey, we want, we want this information, 
or through illicit means, you know, the Chinese or some other covert service, you know, getting access to it. So, you know, there are some serious privacy concerns, I think, just given the amount of our life that is either lived online or within earshot, metaphorically speaking, of a recording device. Right. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And um, I kind of add, I mean, maybe not totally coming out in this conversation, but my background is very much from a libertarian-leaning <laughs> perspective. And we could we could go back into, uh, so I'm not a Rothbardian by any stretch, but we, we could go back into libertarian theory a good bit. What I sort of point out is my, my kind of perhaps deepening understanding over the years of, at least in my view, a kind of pro-liberty position is, is it's not just obsessed with government, although certainly government kind of on days ending and why is the, the people who I most worry about um, abusing power, but it's about addressing concentrated power over the individual from whatever source that that comes. And whether that be corporatist or whether that be government or whatever have you, I think respecting individual privacy of, of kind of individual interest and individual liberty the thing that protects that is to avoid concentration of power under any source. Um, and I think that there is a dangerous, dangerous amount of power concentrated in terms of the very private data that these tech companies have and, and the ways in which they are using it and in the ways in which they are deciding who can speak and who functionally cannot speak uh, in the public square right now. So I'd, I'd actually have some sympathy on the privacy side, particularly with the idea of uh, portability of data and sort of individual ownership of data. But I do want to circle back just briefly on this SMART Act. And I know you said you didn't want to get into the details, but what the Wall Street Journal has said that, that part of what's in this act would involve removing YouTube's autoplay feature, ending infinite scrolling on Twitter and Facebook, um, and potentially having a... Uh, a default limit of 30 minutes a day on platforms and getting into, you know, and I realize that you, you don't might not want to get into all those details and I haven't read the bill myself. I've been reading the reviews of it. I just have a hard time seeing where it's Senator Hawley's business, whether it's the government's business to tell me, tell my kids what they can do on their devices, what they can do on these platforms. I understand there's this concept that some of this is uh, that addictive in some general sense, but where's the personal responsibility? I use social media, but I'm not on it all day. I choose what I, you know, choose who I want to follow. I use it for business. I choose who I follow. I don't follow the president. I don't follow Senator Hawley. So it's not like we're all uh, just addicted and there's no way that we can be accountable for ourselves. What's the justification from a big picture for micromanaging consumers' use of social media? I think, I mean, you, you brought up a few things and I, I honestly, I, I would be lying if I said that I've thought through every sub element of, you know, whether autoplay is somehow a clear and present danger or not. Uh, so I'm not going to claim that I have a really strong view on it. I think there, there's, I, I'm not in necessarily a hundred percent agreement with every provision of the bill. So it could be that I look at that and say, Hey, you know, that's probably a little bit excessively uh, meddling in, in their business without a compelling reason to, but but I would want to sit down and kind of, you know, hear that argument made a little bit more before I jump in. So uh, again, you know, my purpose is not to defend every single provision in this bill, but it's to say that it is a dramatic step forward for the party and for the country that we're talking about these issues, 
that we're questioning some of what I think have been the really terrible assumptions uh, that have been made about uh, kind of the sort of carte blanche that we should be giving these companies and that we are realizing the really large degree of harm that these companies, in my view, are, are um, causing to the political discourse right now, particularly through privileging certain views and censoring others, and that that is front and center. And particularly, I mean, I think everybody personally should care about that for America, just because we're Americans. And I've been equally critical of their censorship of various voices on the left, and there have been a few um, that have run afoul of, of them. But particularly for those of us on the right, who I think are really the victims unquestionably uh, right now of this, it, it is... Um, you know, it should be a political concern of the highest order. All right. So I think we'll end on that note. Jeremy Carl, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me.